1928, William Seabrook, a writer, a traveler, a former soldier and a cultist, journeyed to Haiti, driven by a fascination for voodoo practices. After living with a native sorceress, he heard of a creature that was entirely unique to him. It was not a ghost, a shuffling mummy, or a talking skeleton. It was what he heard was called a zombie. In his book, Magic Island, published the next year, Seabrook described his encounter with, with this unusual being. It seemed, he said, that while the zombie came from the grave, it was not a ghost, nor yet a person who had been raised like Lazarus from the dead. The zombie, they say, is a soulless human corpse, still dead, but taken from the grave and endowed by sorcery with a mechanical semblance of life. It is a dead body, which is made to walk and act and move as if it were alive. People who have the power to do this go to a fresh grave, dig up the body before it has time to rot, galvanize it into movement, and then make of it a servant or a slave. Seabrook's description was instrumental in propelling the idea of a zombie from its native country in Haiti to what eventually became international stardom. Movies such as Night of the Living Dead depicted the zombie in a way now familiar to many contemporaries. It's undead, but insatiably ravenous. It's mentally empty, a, a monster that transforms ordinary people into zombies themselves with its chomping bite. Of course, there are also vampires. Perhaps most famously, there's Count Dracula, which was described by Bram Stoker. In the voice of the narrator, we hear of Dracula as the following. The narrator says, never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit. His eyes were positively blazing. This red light in them was lurid, as if the flames of hellfire blazed behind them. His faith was, face was deathly pale, and the lines of it were like drawn wires. He had thick eyebrows over what seemed to be hot metal of his face. With a fierce sweep of his arm, Dracula hurled women from him, and he beat them back. It was this imperious gesture that I had seen before. So more sophisticated than zombies, vampires are suave, smooth, seductive, conscious in their desire to transform a human being into themselves by taking their blood. Now, not a fan of zombie or vampire fiction myself. I find those things rather distasteful, if you forget the pun. Nevertheless, I think that these stories and the creatures help us to understand better the nature of the resurrection, because through them we can consider Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now, one of the most thorough contemporary scholarly examples of an exposition on the resurrection, the scholar Michael Licona says, while ne nearly every scholar in the world agrees that Jesus was executed by the Romans, it is what happened after he was removed from the cross that has been the subject of more than 3,400 books and articles written in the past 35 years. And that's just the past 35 years. Now, I would argue that it's important for Christians to investigate the veracity of the resurrection for a number of reasons. First, because the resurrection is the center of our faith. Christ was not just a good man, 
He was a man so good that death couldn't hold him and evil couldn't stop him. However, St. Paul says our faith is in vain if we do not believe that Christ rose from the dead. And so, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, our death is our faith is vain. Secondly, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then Christians are fools. And not only fools, in a way, we're liars. Every Sunday at Mass, we recite the creed. And in that creed, we say, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day. Now, a person who says that but does not believe it is a liar. And so if we proclaim the resurrection of Christ and he didn't rise from the dead, or if we don't believe that actually happened, then we're both fools and liars. We're bearing false witness. But it gets worse. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then all of us are incurably wicked. Oh, you might do a good deed from time to time. You might seem to be a good apple. But without Christ to save you, your life is lost. A man cannot save himself any more than a rotten apple can make itself fresh by its own action. Only God can reverse the course of corrupted nature. Only someone who has overcome death can himself overcome death in us. So consequently, without Christ's resurrection, we are entirely without hope. Being good might allow us to get along with others, but if a person chooses vice, can we really say otherwise? Without Christ's resurrection, virtue ultimately is meaningless because there's no resurrection from the dead. And so there's no trajectory, there's no teleology to our goodness here. We might as well enjoy life and go out with a bang. Now, there's a further consequence, namely that if we proclaim Christ and he didn't rise, then Catholics are the most miserable of people. Yes, we might seem to be happy from time to time if you look hard enough, but let's admit, Catholics practicing, well, it's difficult. And in fact, practicing the faith requires us to suffer. It rubs against us to be patient with a whiny child, to avoid gossip, or to hold the tradition steadfastly in the midst of so many denials of it, to keep the faith. If the cross means anything, it means suffering. So if the Catholic faith is not founded on the resurrection, then what we're doing here is suffering for no purpose. We have no reward to come, and therefore we are most miserable, and we ought to be pitied. And therefore, we need to see, is the resurrection true? Now, if Christ did not rise from the dead, not only are we miserable who believe in him, but in fact, he is a liar and a fool. He's a liar because he repeatedly predicted that he would rise on the third day. And he's a fool because he himself believed it. Now, it's important, I would say, not only for Catholics to think about the resurrection, but also for non-Catholics, non-Christians. Because if Christ did rise from the dead, then faith is useful. Faith is reasonable. Faith is good. And likewise, if Christ rose from the dead, then we start to learn about the true nature of divine power about our destiny, and about our combat with good and evil. So here I'm going to try to answer two questions. They're simple, don't worry. The first is, what do we mean when we say that Christ was raised from the dead? And the second is, did he rise from the dead? 
All right, so first, what do we mean when we talk about the resurrection of Christ? Now, it seems to me that um, we can go about this in two ways. We can either try to simply repeat what Scripture says within its own description of Christ rising from the dead and try to elaborate a kind of theology that way, or we can say what the resurrection is not. And I'll take the second way, because I think that helps us to clarify, perhaps more clearly, what we mean. So first, we're going to say that according to the Catholic faith, I'm not trying to prove it yet, I'm just saying what Catholics believe about the resurrection is we, we, we believe that it was not a mere vision of Christ's person. For instance, people can say that they have a vision of a ghost. I remember I visited a house once, and uh, they asked me to bless the house, these people who were hardly practicing at all. And they had said that a man there had died in a fire under suspicious circumstances. His wife hadn't died, and she was right next to him. And, um, and later on, there were all sorts of, they said, hauntings in the house. Now, this woman who lived there, she said that she, sh she saw a shadow. It looked like a shape of the fellow. This is not what we mean by Christ's resurrection. We don't mean some sort of vague encounter with this shadowy figure. The apostles said that he rose from the dead, and therefore he, they're not speaking about some sort of mere vision. They're saying this is true reality, Christ himself. The resurrection also wasn't a recreation, as if Christ went out of existence and then was recreated entirely out of nothing. Now, we know that each human at some point did not exist. This is the Catholic faith. And we say that although Christ as a divine person existed from all eternity, as a human, Christ's human nature came to be in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary at a particular time. This is what we call the incarnation. So Christ in his divinity has existed always, but Christ in his humanity began to exist and entered into history. And so when we say that Christ was resurrected, what we mean is that this humanity that was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, well, that came to rise again. There was no new creation. It was the same that had existed previously. We also say that the resurrection was not some kind of substitution where there's a new Jesus that's substituted for the old one, the way that someone might take off dirty clothes and put on a new, new set as they go into a cleaner place. Of course, some people believe in something like the transmigration of souls, as if, well, the body simply is the, the holding place for a soul. The soul can move from person to person. This is similar to this notion of reincarnation that, well, the same soul can inhabit multiple bodies, whether of humans or even animals, or even perhaps of plants over time. This is not what we mean by the resurrection. We don't mean that somehow a new person is now inhabiting a body that looked like Christ. We would say Christ possessed a full human nature, a complete human body with all of its senses, its imagination, and he had a complete human soul intellect and will, the ability to know and to love. And consequently, the resurrection was a union of the same body he received from the Blessed Virgin Mary and the same human soul that he possessed in his earthly life. The resurrection is not a spiritual change. Some modern thinkers have proposed that perhaps when the disciples spoke of the resurrection, they meant 
the way a, a person may rise to a higher state of being, such as when a person changes from a state of mortal sin to a state of having grace, or from lesser perfection to greater perfection. And so some people propose that the resurrection was simply this deeper expression of Christ's new apprehension of divinity. This is definitely not what Catholics think. As God, Christ possessed an earthly existence insofar as his human life was concerned, but he was always divine, and therefore his being was divine from the first moment of the incarnation. He had the divine life prior to the resurrection. He had the same divine life after the resurrection. And so we wouldn't say that somehow Christ came to experience divinity more greatly. And that's simply what the resurrection was. No, he had truly died, and now he rose again. Christ truly died. His body was separated from his soul. The resurrection affected more than his spirit. He wasn't simply downcast, he was dead. When Christ died, it was after enduring terrible agonies. It was after terrible tortures. His soul left his body. To ensure that Jesus was dead, the Roman centurion thrust a spear into his side. And Jesus was not faking it. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't half dead or mostly dead. He was all dead. His heart had stopped beating. His lungs had stopped breathing. Afterwards, his limbs were wrapped in a shroud, and his body, his corpse, was laid in a tomb. No one doubt that he died. And so we have to say that the resurrection was a movement from death to life. Now, another thing that I would like to say is that the resurrection wasn't a mere material change either. Now, I, I know I'm going to sound like a geek because I've already talked about zombies and vampires. I'm going to bring up Star Trek here, and just don't judge me. My, my uncle likes it, not me. If, if you've ever seen Star Trek, and I, you know, I've just heard rumors about it, um, that uh, there's this thing they call beaming people away, where um, essentially what it is is they particleize the body, where it's in you know, pieces as small as atoms, something like that. And these twinkly little particles get beamed over to a new place. And, um, and this, then when they're in this new place, they're recombined. Some people have thought, well, maybe the resurrection is something like that. Maybe Christ was sort of vaporized once he entered the tomb, and then he coalesced altogether later on. This is inaccurate. Christ's body was the same body. There was no mechanism by which it dispersed into little teeny particles, and it didn't go anywhere either. Although Catholics following scripture say that Christ's soul entered the what's called the limbo of the fathers and there preached to the just who were dead so that they might fully know him when they had known him only in part, that's true. However, his corpse remained in the tomb. There was a stone rolled over it and no one had entered. And so when he rose from the dead, it's not simply this reconstitution of his body. It's the reanimation of his body with his soul. Finally, we might say Christ's resurrection from the dead was not a sort of resuscitation or a vivification of his body by some unnatural means. And this is what people usually mean by zombies. If you remember when I was quoting Seabrook's account, he describes the zombie as a vivified corpse. Nowadays, people use the term undead, 
that's not quite alive and it's not quite dead. It has certain functions of living things. It can move. Uh, zombies can hear typically or they can see. Um, but there's clearly something lacking in the zombies' humanity. Notice that you know zombies don't have sort of an intellectual life. Zombies don't have an emotional life. And so they're quite diminished in terms of their monstrosity. Quite different with Christ. When he rose from the dead, he demonstrated his human nature. He sees Mary. He speaks to her. She sees him. He tells her, do not cling to me. This is the reaction of a human person. Christ later on cooks by the shore of Galilee. He makes fish. He asks questions. He speaks with his disciples. He himself eats. This is no zombie. This is a man. Okay, well, is Christ's resurrection perhaps a resuscitation of the body through preternatural life, like we have with vampires? Again, vampires, well, they're higher than zombies. They have rationality. Vampires don't die. But notice that this deathlessness is not necessarily a miracle. Certainly, we wouldn't say it's from God. Vampires are the opposite, right? They're, in a way, the symbol of everything that Christ is not. Christ gives up his blood so that people might live. Vampires take the blood so that they might survive. Christ dies to save the sins of others. The vampire commits sin and tries to seduce people to become a sinner like him. And so we would say, well, preternatural is the notion of something above human nature, but still exists within the realm of nature as a whole. Supernatural is entirely above the realm of nature as a whole. Angels are undying, but that's not a miracle. And so perhaps this notion of vampires being undead, well, the principle of their life, it's not their human soul. It's clearly not God's action upon them. And so we would say it's a sort of deathlessness that's preternatural, perhaps from magic or from a demon, or usually the cause isn't identified, other than the fact that some other vampire made them to be what they are. And so here we can see that Christ is not simply one who is undead. He's quite living. In fact, he's the most alive. A scholar of vampires, this fellow named Manuel uh, Vargas, he works for the Jesuits, he, um, he related a, an ontology of the undead, and he said that there were basically five categories when we understand you know, things in relationship to being dead and alive. And so he says, first, there's what we have is a normal human being, okay, like you and I, I hope, and um, so you, you're alive. Then he says there's something like vampires, which, you know, on the, on the scale, they're a little less alive than human beings. Um, because, for instance, they don't have all human functions. Vampires can't reproduce. That's very interesting. Um, instead, they have to, you know, chomp into somebody's neck. That's what makes vampires uh, reproduce. Okay, so vampires are lacking something, even in basic humanity. And then we have zombies. And, of course, zombies have even less than vampires. Then he says there's people who have died and stay dead, but could be made undead. This is what we'd call a fresh corpse. And then finally, there's this last category, which he says are vampires, which have been uh, dead, and then they became a vampire, but then they've been dead again, and they're not coming back. You know, so, for instance, they've been killed with a stake in their heart or a silver bullet or whatever it is that really kills vampires. You know, all the stories have different ways of trying to solve that problem. Now, in light of the resurrection, the first thing we have to notice is that this is an incomplete ontology. 
because there are all sorts of other ways that, uh, or two major ways that things can exist outside of these five categories. So first, let's consider um, uh, one more category all the way to the other side. And this is the dead and fully corrupted body. You notice that when things uh, become vampires or zombies, their body can only reach a certain level of decay before they can be revived. Clearly, nobody's becoming a vampire after having become dust, and likewise with zombies. So it has to be a fresh corpse. That's fairly significant. Okay, so there's a sixth category that Vargas didn't consider, which is you know a dead body in this rotting state. And then on, on the other hand, there's this other category, which is Christ. And Christ isn't simply alive the way a human being is, you know, in this natural state. He has human life, absolutely true, but this life is a higher state. And here Aquinas's explanation of the Apostles' Creed in chapter 5 uh, helps us to understand the difference between Christ's resurrection in life and this sort of undead state of these other creatures. So first he says Christ's resurrection differs from all others. You know, I have to just say, of course, Aquinas wasn't talking about vampires or zombies. That could have been interesting, but, you know, that's for us to do. So he's just talking about re stories of resurrection otherwise. He says it's different from all the other stories, or it's a different kind of resurrection than the others. First, because Christ's resurrection is an account of divine power, and it's Christ's own divine power. In contrast, zombies, you know, become what they are, sometimes through natural power, such as through a virus like we might see in the movie uh, 28 Days Later, or um, or maybe it's a bioweapons program gone awry, such as we see you know, in the zombie survival guide, something like that. Or sometimes things are made undead, as I already pointed out, like the vampires with a preternatural power, or maybe through a magician's curse that makes the mummy rise and then walk away. So all of these, though, are quite different from how Christ rose from the dead. Also, Christ's resurrection was different as regards the kind of life to which he arose. You see, Christ rose and he had human life. He was capable even of digestion, as we saw. But he rose from the dead, it says in Romans, to the glory of the Father. So now it's a new mode of human life. It's a supernatural mode of human life. And this is clearly quite different from that of the diminished mode of the vampire or the zombie. Christ's resurrection, Aquinas says, is also different in its effect and efficacy. He says, in virtue of the resurrection, Christ's resurrection now can bring others to rise from the dead. And there are all sorts of beautiful medieval pictures of this, where the, you see Christ seated in majesty, and below him you see the dead rising from their graves in their flesh, all because his resurrection gave the power for them to rise as well. How different that is from the petty powers of, you know, the vampire. Oh, well, the vampire can flit around or turn into a bat. Maybe he can be invisible, not show up in mirrors. That's rather boring when you consider Christ's power to raise entire nations, billions of people from the dead at once through his own resurrection. And then zombies, they have even less power. All they can do is sort of munch on somebody's brain and turn them into a living, walking virus. That, again, is rather mundane. Finally, we can say that Christ's resurrection is different also in time. I already noted that, you know, th these things that die, they have to be uh, in a place where they're not rotting, 
before they can rise and become undead. So this is typically, you know, if you see a movie, this is within hours or maybe, you know, it's, it's a very short amount of time. Christ is in, in the grave three days. So this shows that there must have been something supernatural preserving his body from corruption, even while he's in the grave. And Aquinas explains that this supernatural preservation of Christ's body is also a sign of his divinity. Because having been joined to the divine person of the Son of the Father, Christ's body now became theandric. Everything that Christ's body did somehow expressed and participated in the divine life. So we can see then that the ontology of the resurrection is quite different from the ontologies of all these other ways of becoming undead. But now we come to our second question. That's a nice way of expressing it, but is it true? Did Christ rise from the dead? Well, here, first we can start by noticing when Aquinas explains whether or not Christ rose from the dead, he says that we have to understand the nature of proof. And he says that essentially Christ provided what he called argumenta to manifest the truth of his human nature and to show others that he had risen from the dead. Now, the Latin term argumenta doesn't mean an argument per se. It also doesn't mean proof necessarily, because Aquinas is certainly not saying that we can prove by natural reason that Christ rose from the dead. Rather, he's saying that inductively Christ provided sufficient evidence whereby once it was seen by the apostles and the others who witnessed Christ after his resurrection, that these argumenta, these evidences, these, um, as it were, manifestations were sufficient for them to grasp the truth of the resurrection. So to put it another way, Christ's resurrection from the dead cannot be proved by deductive arguments from reason alone as if somehow the nature of things will lead us to logically conclude that the resurrection of Christ must have taken place and could not have been otherwise. We can't prove the resurrection, for instance, by merely natural means. No biological necessity tells us that Christ rose from the dead. On the contrary, dead bodies normally don't rise. Likewise, there's no sort of world order necessity whereby it was necessary in some uh, metaphysical sense that Christ rose from the dead. We wouldn't say, well, it was necessary like spring follows winter, or necessary because it creates a satisfying narrative, or it was necessary because, well, other mythical heroes rose from the dead, so why can't ours? <laughs> so there's no deductive natural necessity. And in fact, if there were, then for the apostles to refute those who deny the resurrection, such as, you know, the early Jews, well, they could have disproven the Jews merely by natural means. They didn't have to witness Christ's resurrection. They can just say, well, of course he rose from the dead. Winter always, uh, you know, is followed by spring. Of course he rose from the dead. Trees in spring always flower. But this isn't the kind of argument they used at all. And likewise, we would say that if these sort of natural proofs were, were sufficient, Christ didn't even need to manifest himself after he rose from the dead. They could have just known it simply by thinking logically. But clearly, we see the disciples did not believe in the resurrection, even though Christ had predicted it. 
Peter and John run to the tomb. There's John, faster, lighter, smaller, more loving. He's younger. He gets there fast. There's Peter, heavy, older. He was married. And he gets there and he slows down. And then John waits for him. And they see there the cloth in the tomb and something else rolled up to the side. And it says in the Gospel of John, they did not yet know that Christ had to rise from the dead. They were just seeing the initial evidence of the resurrection. And even then they didn't believe. So there's no natural proof that's going to bring us to this place whereby we can hold firm and hold fast within our minds the truth of the resurrection. There's something more than nature that's happening here. Nevertheless, we do want to say that for Christ to rise from the dead is fitting. This is a term used all throughout Aquinas' works, conveniencia. This is something that means that it's, well, it's fitting, and we can say in Old English, it behooves Christ to have risen from the dead. The Greek word, uh, when speaking of this in Luke 24, uh, 46, it uses the word idea meaning it would have been ideal or it would have been, as it were, fitting within God's overall plan for Christ to rise from the dead. It was right and proper. And so we can say that there's a, well, a kind of necessity established by the decree of God, whereby his purpose for the salvation of men is worked through Christ. And so when Christ rises from the dead, we start to see the unfolding of Christ's own work on behalf of the Father, of the Father's providential love for the universe. Aquinas, in speaking about the fittingness of things in the life of Christ, he begins by talking about the incarnation. And he says that because God is good, God's goodness wants to manifest itself in the greatest way, which means that God wants to save us in the best way possible. And that best way is the incarnation. And so it's fitting that God should become incarnate, even though nothing could compel him to do so. He did so out of his love. And likewise, we can make a similar argument with respect to the resurrection. We can say no creature reality could compel God to resurrect Christ. And there's no merely creature power that could bring about the resurrection. But given the incarnation, given the passion and death of Christ, it was, as it were, necessary, necessary secundum quid, that he should also rise from the dead, because this manifests God's best purposes, and it accomplishes them in the highest way. So we can see then that from a natural perspective, even without faith whatsoever, we can see that the resurrection was opportune, on the one hand, because, well, the body and soul are naturally united together, and so it's always unnatural when death intervenes. So we can say, well, it's fitting that they should be united. And we can even suppose that it's fitting that um, Christ should have this happen to him, again, on a natural level. You see, there's some mysteries that are purely supernatural, such that we could never even predict or imagine them. And this would say be the incarnation, the hypostatic union of the person of God with human nature completely unpredictable in, in, in life. There have been, you know, quasi-divine beings like Hercules, 
or preternatural beings like vampires. But no one in the history of the world had ever considered the hypostatic union of God and man in such a way that he's fully God and fully man, all parts together. This is such a mystery that it took centuries for Catholics to explain in the church councils. And it took, well, hours, it took days, weeks, years, decades, centuries for theologians even to begin to understand the mystery. But there are other kinds of mysteries that can be more understood simply because we grasp what their import is by comparing them with other natural things. So, for instance, when we think about mysteries of Christ, say, restoring sight to a blind person, we know what it means to see. We know what it means to not see. So we can grasp the mystery of this, even though it's clearly beyond human power to restore sight. And uh, similarly, we can say we understand what it means for something to rise from the dead. The, the nature of the mystery is not beyond us. It's the power to accomplish the mystery that's beyond us. And so in this way, we can say that the mystery of the resurrection is something that all of us can grasp. It's not beyond us because we know, at least initially, the essence of rising from the dead, even though this is something clearly that cannot happen unless God intervenes because only God has power over life and death itself. So that's a natural perspective. Resurrection is fitting. It's also fitting for supernatural reasons, and Aquinas gives a few of these in his Summa Theologiae, and he says, first, the resurrection would manifest God's justice because God rewards those who are humble of heart. Christ was humble. The resurrection would instruct our faith because it helps us to believe in Christ's divinity. The resurrection lifts up our hope because now we believe that there's meaning to life. The resurrection would inform our own lives, show us how we should live and die so as to rise again. And finally, the resurrection completes the work of salvation. It completes Christ's own prophecies, showing that he tells the truth, and it completes the beginnings of the salvation, which, well, began from the very, very time when Adam and Eve fell away. Okay, so now we have the fittingness. But how about the truth of the thing? <laughs> you see, we're, we're going to make it really precise here. Granted that the resurrection was fitting, that in itself does not prove that it happened. It might be a nice dream that could have happened or should have happened, but maybe never did. It would have been fitting, perhaps, that Adam and Eve never sinned, but they did sin. It may have been fitting, perhaps, that Judas never betrayed Christ, but he did. And so simply to say that the resurrection was fitting is not to give a proof that he rose from the dead. Now, what's interesting is that this is the way that the disciples could have reasoned themselves. They could have thought about prophecies. They could have thought about fittingness. They could have, you know, understood all these things in their mind. But how did they come to believe themselves? How did they believe that the resurrection indeed took place? Well, okay, it can't be proved by natural reasoning. Um, but it can, in a certain way, be manifested through, as I've already said, inductive manifestations. How do they come to believe? Well, piecemeal, bit by bit. Christ began to reveal himself slowly to his disciples, whereby, by grasping that he was really man, and by grasping he was the same person 
and that he rose by divine power, they began to see that something supernatural took place. They began to see that there's a miracle before their eyes. And so the incarnation and the resurrection, as it were, formed a chiasmus in historical time, helping them to see God's work in salvation. You see, there has to be an epistemological foundation to believe in the resurrection at all. We have to recognize that for the early disciples, their Jewish faith provided this epistemological framework by which they could even interpret the signs of the resurrection accurately. They did not believe it was some deceptive illusion or some fiction. Rather, they had a series of beliefs that helped them to grasp, first, that there was a possibility of miracles. They recognized a possibility that God can act in the world in a way above nature. They believe that God indeed at times does so. And in fact, that the circumstances surrounding Christ's death would not exclude the possibility of a miracle. And so this is the first step in their, their own epistemological thinking. Next, their Jewish faith helped them to grasp Christ's own work prior to the resurrection. You see, with this understanding of the Torah, they saw that God had indeed worked in the world to help the Hebrew people, that through his servant Moses, he had brought upon Pharaoh ten plagues, he had split the Red Sea, he had made water come from the rock, and so on. And so when they meet Christ and they see him, they start to then recognize that God not only had worked through Moses, that he was working through Jesus. You see, Christ himself had multiplied loaves. He had walked on water. He had read men's minds. Christ rose others from the dead, Lazarus among them, manifesting that he had power over death itself. And so all of this provided for them the foundations by which once they saw Christ in the flesh, they were able to have faith that this was truly him, that he had the power to do so. It was reasonable to believe this. When Christ brought Lazarus back from the dead, he wasn't performing some kind of voodoo, magical, mystery, sorcery trick. He did not impart to them a sort of living death as a vampire might. When Christ rose Lazarus from the dead, he rather gave him back his full human life that he had lived before. And so, now that Christ himself rose from the dead, he manifested to his disciples all the various ways in which human beings have life. This is, this is fascinating. Aquinas is quite insightful here. He says, for instance, that Christ showed that he was a true solid body. He said, touch my wounds. The women grasped his feet. He showed that his body was a human body. He had the same features that he had before. In fact, even so much that he had the same scars. Christ had the identically same body as he had when he was walking throughout this entire life. See my hands and see that it is I myself, he told them. And he showed that he had risen from the dead through his entire human life, not just a partial human life. He had nutritive life. He ate and drank. Unlike vampires who can only you know, benefit from blood or zombies who really can't benefit from much at all, Christ actually could eat even ordinary food. He's eating fish. Christ showed the powers of his sensitive life, his sensory life. He greeted them. He spoke with them. He saw them, showing that 
in seeing and hearing, he has this level of life present as well. Christ also showed his intellectual life. He conversed with them. He explained to them scriptures. He used parables as he had before. And finally, Christ also showed his divine life. He worked a miracle. He helped his disciples to catch a great load of fish. And the other miracle, him ascending into heaven, showed that he truly was divine. So in the resurrection, then, Christ provided all of the necessary elements for one to put them all together and to see, as it were, inductively, he truly is risen from the dead. And this is truly him, body and soul, divinity as well, before us, my Lord and my God. So it was reasonable for the disciples to believe in the resurrection. But is it reasonable for us? Well, first, let's consider very briefly the fact that the disciples themselves had gone from a state of unbelief and cowardice to a state of boldness and firm belief. At the time Christ was apprehended in the garden, they all fled. At the time of his crucifixion, one was underneath the cross. And yet soon after Christ had risen from the dead, they were preaching, they were willing to suffer and die, even by the very people who killed Christ. There's nothing that could explain that on a natural level. Psychologically speaking, someone who goes from being you know, a coward to being confident, someone who has this, this strength of will, can't do so simply because, you know, their master had maybe been in a drunken swoon or, you know, he's living a sort of a half-life like a zombie or vampire. They're not worshiping some sick man or some partial man. They're worshiping the full man. And this restoration from the dead gave them confidence in their own ability to face the difficulties that they encountered. Christ came to life physically. That was the good news. Their good news that they preached wasn't love your neighbor. It was something new that had not happened before. Christ is risen from the dead. We can also consider the reaction of those who had rejected Christ as Savior. After Christ had um, risen Lazarus from the dead, what's interesting is that there were so many Jews that came to see Lazarus, he was kind of a spectacle to them, that the Pharisees they decided that they couldn't deny that Lazarus had risen from the dead. And so in one of, I think it's one of the most ironic lines in the gospel, it says that they sought to kill him. <laughs> oh, you rose from the dead? We're going to kill you because too many people are believing in Jesus because of you. So think about the same attitude of the Pharisees after the resurrection. They don't, they can't produce the body of Jesus. I'm sure they would have loved to. They can't, as it were, go on a searching hunt. They, they don't even suggest hunting for the real body of Jesus. Instead, they bribe some guards to say that his body was stolen. They never, they never uh, propose where the body is. And so what's interesting then is that after the disciples start to preach boldly, all they can do is attack the disciples. It's a purely violent, irrational response to the resurrection. The fact that they resisted rather than refuted the disciples' claims speaks for the reality of the resurrection. And finally, the growth of the early church is itself something of a witness to the resurrection. Because the early church consisted largely of Jews who had converted to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And notice what they did. They proclaimed his resurrection. 
They prayed to Jesus. They baptized in his name. They claimed that he was exalted at God's right hand. They called him Lord and Christ, the very thing that was called blasphemous by the Jewish high priest at Jesus's trial. The first Christians, well, they didn't even have enough time to really establish themselves, and they were starting to get martyred. And yet, nevertheless, they grew in number. And we can say that only the encounter with the risen Christ would have been sufficient for these converted Jews to have believed in him at all. It's an extraordinary thing. And the conversion of Paul is chief among those signs of the resurrection. How can a man like Paul go go from persecuting Christians to believing in the resurrected Christ? There's something supernatural here. What was it that gave these Christians such strength, such peace, such undeterred courage, despite all tortures? By what power did Christians spread through the empire, which was so powerful and so overwhelmingly evil? Why were they so heroic, so undeterred, despite temptation and agony and darkness? The very young and the very old, maidens and mothers of families, slaves, philosophers and nobles, confessors and huge companies of people, all of these seemed equally to defy the powers that wanted to do their worst. What was the source of their fortitude? How was it? Was it simply because they were well-organized? Was it because they had an esprit de corps? Was it because, well, they feared looking bad in front of each other? None of these are sufficient to explain it. Rather, we have to say that there was one reason for their absolute confidence, and it was that Christ had risen from the dead. And those early Christians who believed, well, they are the ones who passed on to us that same apostolic belief. One of the essential messages of Christ's resurrection from the dead is that the church is the living witness that brings this witness through the centuries, person by person, in a link, one by one, all the way up into our time. Mary Magdalene spoke to Peter. Peter spread the early message of the resurrection to Jerusalem, and the Christians in Jerusalem be were spread throughout the world. All of us have benefited from their witness, from their faith. And we can say that by Christ's design, Peter's witness, especially through his successors, the popes, become the chain of undying faith, whereby we believe that Christ is now alive. And so now, living in the church, we can cling to that chain of faith. And if we die holding on to it, we'll find that one day God will lift us up and he will give us a tug and we shall rise from the dead like him. Not a zombie, not a vampire, but full of light and strength, able to move with ease, perfectly formed and overflowing with love and joy and life. So regarding the, the bodily nature of the resurrection, um, something I've come across even among practicing Catholics is that a major obstacle to accepting it uh, can be basically like a a wrong uh, anthropology, right? That if, for example, someone's a Cartesian, they're going to have an issue with understanding why the body really matters. Um, do you have any thoughts about how to, for perhaps the trying to be faithful Christian, but who doesn't have the philosophical background, how to approach that and really get across the how essential it is that the body is. Uh,
Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a good question because it's quite common nowadays. People have a Gnostic approach to anthropology, such that the the body, as I said, is seen as a sort of uh, clothing that the soul can cast off and then reach this higher state of being without the body. So, so with people who um, have difficulty grasping that, and this is this is very very common, especially with people who are more involved in um, you know, Eastern meditation, those people who um, are now practicing these things where you try to make the body disappear, you allow your body to sink into the world, these sorts of things, is it, it's first important to help them to grasp uh, the biological nature of human beings in general. And so I remember getting into a discussion with somebody and saying, well, you know, one of the definitions of the human person is um, a rational animal. And they said, I'm not an animal speaker yourself. <laughs> well, okay. Um, actually, uh, we all are animals, and that's actually uh, a really important point. Um, so even having that discussion on that level, why would we have some connection with animals? And that doesn't mean, you know, per se to get into discussions about evolution. I mean, maybe we can go there, but it's more just helping people to see that when we say you are somebody, that means your body is who you are. It's not simply, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Cartesian soul in a machine. So anyway, so I, de I definitely recommend helping people to grasp. The other way is to talk about their emotions. Everybody knows their emotions are theirs. They typically like their emotions. And, um, and so it may be helpful to help people to see an emotional life means a bodily life. Angels don't have emotions. I'm sorry. They're, you know, angels aren't crying in heaven or anything like that. So that's, that's another thing that you can do.